Man, couldn't have picked a better song for what we're going to be talking about this morning. Oh, buried my father yesterday. <laughs> Seeing all my cousins. My family. Oh, I pray they're not lost. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you saved us. How you picked us, Lord, matters not. So thankful that you did. If you ever pick a song like that again, Mike, that God, no, I'm just joking. Please take your Bibles. <clears throat> I'm so, I apologize. Um, please take your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's been, I think, four weeks since we've been in Peter due to blizzards and Easter and, of course, Janice speaking. Um, so we're getting right back into Peter. And what's ironic, and it's, Ron knows this, the Holy Spirit, man, He connects everything together. The songs, the message last week on Easter flows right into this message. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. May God add a blessing to his word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we come before you in your word, knowing, Father, that your word is truth, knowing, Father, that your word is living, and active, and I pray in our lives. Lord, as we examine the scriptures this morning on the blessings we receive from your death and triumph, Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts, to that area, Lord, that we have yet to let go and give to you fully. So help me, Lord, preach this word, Father. I pray that everything I say is in accordance with your word and that, Father, it would bless those that would hear it to and include myself. But if there's anything I say, Father, that is not from you, Lord, let it pass by the memories of those that hear. For we only want to hear from you, Lord, this morning in Jesus' name. Like I said four weeks ago, I preached on encouragement. And suffering, and I apologize, I don't, I don't have PowerPoint this morning. I just 
didn't get to it as of yesterday. Now, within that sermon I, I, I talked about four weeks ago as it relates to the preceding verses to what we are covering this morning, um, with the theme of Peter being living holy lives as we sojourn or travel through an evil and hostile world, that we will face suffering. We may even face persecution at various levels and degrees. Now, within that sermon, I identified three encouragements that we had that, Paul, that Peter provides to aid in that suffering when we experience it, and that is to do good in the midst of suffering. Don't return evil for evil. Honor Christ in your hearts and keep a good conscience while suffering. And I define that conscience as been being purified by Christ's blood. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning as well. But now this morning, we will examine verses 18 through 22 as we just read. And within these verses, we will see the blessings that we receive from Christ's suffering and death, but also His triumph. For His triumph is our triumph. Now, I find it interesting, like I said, the correlation between last week's and this week's, in that this is almost a continuation of last week. So if you may have dozed off last week, you're going to get a, a double dose here this morning. So let's, let's take a look right now at verse 18 and begin our examination of Scripture. For in verse 18 it says, For as we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. As we sojourn through this life, we will suffer, as I said, either physically or spiritually. We will suffer not only because we live in a cursed body that's decaying every day and will eventually die, but because we also live in a cursed world. And as followers of Christ in this world, it'll be hostile to us. Scripture says that's going to happen. It's not a mystery. And when we do, we must remember one of the greatest blessings that we've ever received by way of Christ that allows us to endure that suffering is our salvation in Christ. One of the things that they talked about as far as the sound apologetics of the fact that Christ did rise from the dead is that the apostles, why would they live a lie that will eventually, for some, cause them to be persecuted to death? No one would ever live for a lie to the point of death, but they did it because they believed. And it's the salvation that we have that carries us through those moments of suffering and persecution. Now, Christ's suffering was not a result of His teachings, was not a result of His preachings, was not a result of the healings that He did on the Sabbath, although this gave excuse to the religious leaders. But that's not the reason. In Luke, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That word must is important. Christ suffered in order to fulfill His purpose 
And that purpose brings us to the first blessings that Peter is alluding to in the death and suffering of Christ, and that is the atonement of our sin by way of His suffering and death. Now, what does that word atonement mean? Well, it's the central doctrine of faith. And it essentially includes all of the works that Christ did on the cross. And one of those works is the sacrifice of Christ as the perfect and final sacrifice for the penalty of our sin that has great blessings and ramifications. You see, within Jewish observances, they offered sacrifices continuously for the purpose of remission or covering of sins. These sacrifices never really satisfied the penalty for breaking the law for breaking God's holy law. And that is why Christ had to come. That is why God the Father sent His Son. As John proclaimed, John the Baptist, see there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why He came, to be the Lamb that would be sacrificed for you and me. You see, our sin requires a sacrifice as decreed by God's holy and just law. And as with the animals, they were sacrificed. They also had to be without blemish, as perfect as they could be in a cursed world. But Christ was perfect in every way, therefore fully satisfying that sacrifice once and for all. Why? Because he never sinned. Think of that. Not one thought. Temptation never manifested itself. Although Christ was tempted in every way that we are tempted, not one time did he give in to it. Even under great pressure. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I probably would have ran. But he stayed to fulfill the will of the Father. He was without error. Think of that. Moms, the perfect son. Jesus was the perfect son. I, James, I wish you were more like Jesus. I don't know if she ever said that to him, but if you read his, if you read his uh, letter, he probably heard that. He was perfect in every way. And through his suffering and sacrifice, we receive the atonement for our sin. When we receive him in faith. But why did he have to suffer? Why couldn't he just been simply put to death in the most in the most humane way for our sins? Well, the simple reason is because within a sacrifice, there is suffering. They're synonymous with each other. From the very beginning with the Garden of Eden, animal was sacrificed to provide the covering for Adam and Eve's shame as garments. In the Mosaic Law, the shedding of blood was offered as an atonement for the life. And Jesus came, like I said, as the Lamb of God who suffered, had to, in order to be that sacrifice for the shedding of His blood for our atonement. It was a necessary payment for our sins. 
That's what it costs to redeem you. You see, I stated last week when we're, we're born into sin, we can't escape that. We cannot rid ourselves of it through works. We cannot remove it by way of religion, observances, and sacraments. We cannot cure it with positive thinking or meditation. Wherever we went, sin was there because we were born into it. As a result, we lived it because we were enslaved to it. And sin is an offense to God. We lose that sometimes. It's an upright offense towards God because it breaks His holy law. And so justice must be applied as with any law and with consequences that are eternal. Eternal. But because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that sin was atoned for. He paid what you couldn't. The final sacrifice was applied once and for all with no further sacrifice required. But here's the thing. It requires faith to receive it. It requires faith to obtain it. You see, friends, Christ died for all. But unfortunately, not all will be saved. That is an unfortunate but real truth. The world says they will all be saved. Oh, they're in a better place. Mm. I pray they are. It requires one to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead and by doing so, so you will be saved. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross requires faith-filled response. It's reciprocal in that we must respond in faith in order to receive its full atonement in our lives. And when we do reply in that faith, we receive something very precious. And that's the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. And it is the second blessing we receive from Christ's death. And it is significant. So what does the righteousness of Christ mean? What are you, what are you talking about, Tim? Because what... When we were born into sin, when sin entered into the world, our relationship with God the Father was severed. No longer did Adam and Eve walk in the garden with God as they once did before sin. A great gulf was placed between man, God's creation, and him because of sin. There was no intimacy. There was no oneness with God. There was distance. But when Christ suffered and died on the cross, He did a great many works through the atonement, and one of those works is justification. And justification is a legal term which means to legally declare something to be righteous. 
You see, we don't have any righteousness on our own before the Lord, before God. But as Scripture says, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? That comes out of Romans chapter 5, verse 9. This makes sense given that our sin is revealed by the law. You're not a lawbreaker until you break a law. You don't know you're breaking a law until there is the law. And we're born into that. And we're born lawbreakers. Now, as part of justification... It's being alluded to by Peter, although not specifically specified in verse 18. It's something we need to understand, and that is the doctrine of imputation. I know it's a big word. It's a theological word, but it's essential that we understand and grasp what that means because it'll change the way you live your life in Christ. Now, to set the stage, we must understand because of our sin, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Not one. Paul stated as much in in Romans. No matter our works or efforts, there is no righteousness in us. You can be Mother Teresa on steroids and still not have righteousness before the Father because you were born into sin. But when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, something very marvelous happens. Christ imputes His righteousness in us so that we become righteous before God. What does that mean? It means that you have now received that which you lacked. Righteousness. And this is the righteousness that changes your standing before God from being guilty of sin to not being guilty of sin. And now we can be in the presence, the very presence of God the Father through Christ and regain the intimacy with Him that was lost. You are reconciled with God the Father through Jesus Christ, intimately. And that's what Peter is saying when he says, brings us to God. We can now approach the throne of grace in a time of need boldly because we have been reconciled, because Christ's righteousness has been imputed in us, and that is what God sees when we approach Him. On Wednesday, Mike brought a teaching out of John chapter 17. And as we sat and talked about all of the, all of the elements of John chapter 17, it was mentioned that, that only in the Christian faith, only in the Christian religion, and no others in the world, can you have an intimate relationship with your God. All others have a gulf. Only in the Christian faith can you, through Christ, have a relationship being one with the Father. We need to be reminded of that. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 21, it reads this, that, oh, I love this verse, that they may all be one, just as you, this is Jesus speaking, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. 
That's what takes this from religion to faith. From religion to life. Is the intimacy with the Father. And that's what we receive through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And when we grasp this, we will never feel that separation from God. Because remember His promise, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Nothing can separate me or you from the love of God. Nothing. And that is why the imputed righteousness of Christ is so precious. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. It's not something I got to attain to through a long life of religious practices. It was given to me. And when he gave it to you, he says, now come here. I want you to meet somebody that you have not known until this time. And I mean really know. God the Father. And it was a trinity hug right there. Let's continue on. Verse 19 through 20. In which we went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, this is defined by many scholars, past and present, as the most difficult scripture in the Bible to understand. Why Peter puts this in here at this particular point in time, well, there's no majority view. Everybody's view is a minority, and they vary, and they have varied all throughout church history as to what Peter is alluding to as to the period of Christ's tridum mortis, which is that three-day period from his death to his resurrection. What did he do? Now, if we read ESV, if you read NIV, you read New King James, you would look at it in the English, and you would say, well, well, he went down and he preached to the people in the prison there, I guess. But actually, throughout the history of the church, there have been several positions that people have taken. And again, there is no majority view. They're all minor view. In fact, I'm going to introduce you to four of them. I'm going to go through these very quickly because... It really, I don't want to deter from the text that we're talking about this morning and what Peter is really driving at. The first position was in the earliest position held by Clement of Alexandria, who proposed that Christ, during the Triduum Mortis, descended to the abode of the souls and preached repentance to Noah's temporaries to bring about their conversion. Clement posed that pre-Christian pagans were unable to receive Christ in faith. Therefore, Christ went into the abode of souls to offer that which they never were offered. The position may sound familiar to some who have come from the previous faith of Catholicism, where in part the doctrine of purgatory is derived from. Now, I, have, I don't agree with this position at all. Why? Because Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. There are no second chances. After we, 
leave this earth, how we lived it will determine. What we put our faith in will determine where we will be for all eternity. There's no purgatory. There's no justification for purgatory in Scripture. But there are faiths that believe that. The second position, which is similar to the first position, evolved in the, in the early church, and that Christ descended, but instead of preaching salvation, he preached judgment to those of the abode of souls who were disobedient during the time of Noah. This position has less theological issues, less problems with it, i.e., preaching salvation to those who are dead, who had the opportunity, by the way, because Noah was a preacher for 120 years while he was building the ark. He just wasn't building an ark. He was also proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, this, was, this second position was adopted by Lutheran scholars early, but over time it has fallen out of favor. The third position posed by posed that Christ did in fact preach, as the text says, but it hinges on when. When did he preach? I believe Calvin's position was that Christ, having to suffer the full extent of his humanity, went to the abode of souls and remained there for three days. After three days, he was resurrected, as observed and visited by the apostles and the Marys. Now, within that abode of souls, we see that there are two compartments, according to this theory. And we do see that in Scripture. Remember the parable of Jesus when he's talking about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man was in the place of torment. And the, and the man of torment could see Lazarus. And so there's two segments of the abode of souls. There's paradise and then there's Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. And so this theory theorizes that during that 40-day period of ministry in which Jesus was on the earth from 40 days, um, from after his resurrection until 40 days until his ultimate ascension, he ministered, and it was during that time that he went into this abode of souls and preached triumphal victory. Now, that one is held by many to be the case of what Peter is saying in this scripture. The final position is that Christ in his spirit preached judgment upon those evil spirits at the time of Noah where the sons of God and their evil progeny, the angels, had relationships with the sons of men and their evil progeny, the Nephilim, which you see in Genesis 6, 4, who existed during the time of great disobedience to Noah, and that Jesus went and preached judgment upon them. That's the fourth theory. For those who know John MacArthur, he holds to this position. And for as much as I like John MacArthur and I read his books and his sermons and much of I've learned from him, I can't seem to align myself with this one. It seems out of context of what Peter is trying to say here as much as we can understand what Peter is trying to say. And so those are the four positions that are common in most theology as the church from its inception to present. Now, as for me, I align with a Augustine R.C. Sproul position in that Peter is speaking about the pre-existing Christ who preached through Noah 
And it is based upon an earlier scripture within Peter that alludes to that. If you look in uh, 1 Peter, it says um, in verse 10, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what, the, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Understand, Christ had not come yet. But the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Those were the prophets. And so it was a pre-existing Christ preaching through Noah Additionally, the term prison can be interpreted as simply the prison of sin rather than a specific place like Sheol or Hades. In fact, Christ himself said in Luke 4, he has come to set the captives free. And we know that the captive, what that means is to be captivated by sin. And finally, in verse 20, as it relates to my interpretation, we see that when is a very important word that relates, in my opinion, to the time of Noah. Now, some would say, well, Tim, what about Ephesians 4.9? How does your position deal with Ephesians 4.9? Where Paul says not only that he ascended, but that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. Again, there has been some different and varying interpretations about Ephesians 4.9, but if you study the ESV, which is the most literal translation that you can have right now, it defines the lower regions as the earth by virtue of putting a comma before the lower regions. It says the lower regions, comma, the earth. And so do I believe that Jesus went to Hades and Sheol for three days? Yes. But do I believe he preached in Hades and Sheol? That I'm not convinced of. But at the same time, I'm not going to go to the hill and die on my opinion. That's simply, again, everybody has an opinion and interpretation of this, and I line more with R.C. Sproul, but it's not without its difficulties. So you can see this segment of Scripture is extremely difficult. But let's not, let's not get bogged down in the interpretation of how that applies to what we're talking about it is inspired scripture, but it's very confusing, and many scholars would say, ah, they have a tough time with this scripture and what Peter is trying to say. In fact, it's funny, Peter even says, you know, sometimes Paul writes in a very confusing way. Well, Peter, you did a pretty good job here, right? But let's move on. Let's pick back up on verses 20 to 21 where we read, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Here, we see Peter is using the story of Noah as a visual illustration of the baptism of Christ. Now, as ambiguous as the prior verses were in interpretation, this one comes with its own challenges, too. And that Peter seems to be teaching that baptism itself saves you. The act of baptism saves you. And it's often referred to as baptismal regeneration. But we know from Scripture that that's not true. So obviously Peter means or is advocating something different. What Peter is alluding to is the work of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. 
And it's that way, by that way, we can only obtain the atoning work of Christ on the cross. When we place our faith in Him, we are baptized in Christ. Galatians 3.27 says this, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have put on Christ. Now, as we have received imputed righteousness, as I spoke earlier, from the work of justification, we also receive an immersion in Christ by way of baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that every person who has come to faith needs to be baptized by way of full immersion as a proper outward act of faith as to what occurs within us when we place our faith in Christ by way of the baptism of the Spirit. If we are not baptized in Christ by way of the Spirit and regenerated by that, then no outward act of a ritual can save you. No sacrament can save you. This is why I interview people prior to baptism, because I want to see that inward baptism, if you will. And if it's not occurred by way of the Spirit, a symbolic one is of no use. But why does Peter insert this here? I don't know if you think like me. Like, Peter, what are you bringing this up for? But you know what? It continues to reveal the blessings we receive from the atoning work of Christ and that we are fully immersed in Christ now by way of the Holy Spirit. We're just not saved and say, go now, do whatever. No, we are immersed in the Holy Spirit, given gifts from the Holy Spirit, given purpose from the Holy Spirit, given a mission from the Holy Spirit to accomplish for the Lord. And we can only do that through the Holy Spirit. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. Remember the scripture, for I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So not only has Christ atoned for us, but He's also filled us with His Holy Spirit in full immersion, to live this life in Christ. That's what gives you the power to live the life that you live in Christ. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your own strength. You will fail. And you probably have felt that in your life. We have to release and allow the Holy Spirit full control of our lives. And we fully profess this immersion by way of the Holy Spirit, through the sacrament of baptism, where we align and testify with Christ through His death and resurrection. But here is even a more richer blessing that we receive by way of spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit. Something that if you read really quick, you'll miss it. And that is we receive a good conscience a good conscience. You heard me speak about this four weeks ago. If you, and in fact, it comes out of Hebrews four, uh, Hebrews nine fourteen, where it says, "Who though the eter eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God." You see, when we were baptized in the Holy Spirit, we received a good conscience in Christ. Now, why is that important? Well. We've got to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. In fact, he's obviously writing to Jews who practiced and observed all of the law, 
all of the sacrifices, all of the works, all of the things they needed to do for the remission and covering of sins, all the rituals, all the festivals. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, our salvation is not based upon works, but upon faith. And that our prior conscience was about works than faith. And even though we did various works and observances for those who practice such things, if you had a previous religion before you came to Christ, the sense of guilt never was ever taken away. When I was in my previous faith, no matter what I did, no matter how many times I went to confession, no matter how many times I got a blessing from the priest, no matter how many times I did good work for the church, that sense of guilt never left me. Although I felt good about what I was doing, it never left me. There was a woman that once said this, I don't know what is the matter with me. I do all I can do to serve the Lord, but I still feel guilty. And then I feel guilty about feeling guilty. That's a seared conscience. Now, what that lady said, there's one word there that we need to circle. It's serve. Now, I'm not saying we're not supposed to serve the church, serve the Lord. I just said that we have gifts and abilities that God has called us to do for the ministry of the saints. We need to develop them. We need to do them, walk in them, trust in Him, be empowered by Him. But the word serve, we don't serve for our salvation or to feel good about our salvation. If you do, you have not fully received the good conscience that God gave you in your baptism. And what does that mean? That means he's removed the guilt of your religious works in order to save yourself. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, wow, gosh, I, I haven't been in church for a couple of weeks because of this and that or the other. I don't feel involved. And man, I, I got, and it affects your relationship with God? If that does happen... It's, you need to fully embrace and accept that you have been given a good conscience. That the atonement has done its final and complete work and that your standing before God cannot change. No matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, doesn't change your standing before God. There should be no guilt now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit won't burden you to do something He's called you to do. We know that in James. But to feel the condemnation for not doing something is evident of a seared conscience and not accepting the good conscience that God has given you by way of Christ in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this atonement, justification, imputed righteousness, and baptism by the Holy Spirit is in essence our salvation. And it is only possible by way of Christ's resurrection. I stated last week, Christ never raised, none of this matters. Christ was never raised from the dead, resurrected, and sitting at the right. None of this matters. The atonement doesn't matter. It's just a word. Imputed righteousness never happens. Immersed into the Holy Spirit in your life doesn't happen. Receive a good conscience? Not there. 
fact, I would say we're probably not even here this morning. So the resurrection is key. Centrality of our faith. It's the catalyst of our atonement and all of the works that Christ did on the cross. Finally, in verse 22, we see the blessings from the triumph. We just talked about the blessings we received from Christ's death. Now let's talk quickly about the two blessings we received from His triumph over death. And in verse 22 it says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God and the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. Here we see the triumph of Christ where He now sits at the right hand of God with all authority. That's important to understand. All authority. I'm not a message Bible kind of guy. I just... I, mm. But when I read this segment of Scripture through the message... It kind of, I don't know, kind of intrigued me. So I'll read it for you. His standing right alongside God and what he says goes. That sums up pretty good. What he says goes. No one can overrule him. Now how does this bless us, Tim? Well, first we could take heart because he has overcome the world by his triumph. We know the verse, verse John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Why do we have peace? Because in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Christ's triumph is overcoming this world by defeating death. Now gives us a living hope. Not a desperate hope. A living hope. I love that word. You guys know that's my favorite word. To endure this world and the suffering we may save, we may face. Why? Because we have an advocate who has been given all authority unto him and all the power to sustain us and, if necessary, intervene. And to me, this gives me great hope. That nothing happens in my life without His permission. And if it does, He's going to use it for good. Jesus is not unaware of your circumstances. Jesus is not unaware of the things that you are facing. Jesus is not unaware. He is not aloft. He doesn't know. There's not an angel going up saying, Did you know that Ken's going through? What? I had no idea. Who's in charge? Well-oiled machine, as Ron said this morning. He knows everything. He allows everything. And He sustains you in everything because of His triumph. Secondly, our Lord is in all authority. Our salvation, which is by faith alone, comes under divine authority and protection of the Father through Jesus Christ. Think of that. When you gave your life to Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, not only do we receive all those things that I've already talked about, but here's Jesus. This person has placed his faith in me. No one has authority over him or her except me. You have to come through me to get to them. That gives me great hope. There is nothing that is not subjected to the authority of Christ. He rules, he reigns over angels and demons, all principalities and powers, and all submitters and resistors of the cross, all of which are subject to his sovereignty, his will, and his power. 
And the blessings we receive from this is tremendous because we as believers need never fear anyone or anything as he will always provide, protect, sustain, and if necessary, deliver us for his good pleasure. In John chapter 10, 28, it says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. No one. No matter the trials and tribulations we'll face, never forget that they're always and always will be under the authority of Christ and He will keep you. That's a promise. And even if we perish under the persecution that we may face in this world, understand we don't live in a temporary world. We live for all eternity. Our citizenship is not of this world. It is of heaven. And the time that we spend on this earth cannot be measured in the eternity that we will spend with the Lord. It is but a vapor, if even that. And, John, um, and so in the triumph of Christ, we have His victory because He's overcome the world and because we're under His authority. Now, brothers and sisters, within our text, in conclusion, we see the blessings we receive from Christ's death and triumph. It is a finished work. It's fully complete. It lacks nothing. If there's one thing I would like for you to take away from the sermon this morning concerning our standing before God as a result of the works completed by Christ in His death and suffering and His triumph is this, and I'll quote it from Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to take away from this sermon. You are presented blameless before the presence of God. This is the blessings we receive by virtue of Christ's death and triumph. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for your word. Although difficult in certain elements, Lord, and maybe... One day we'll learn and understand exactly what Peter was talking about in verse 19. But Father, what we did receive from your word this morning is that through you, your Christ, your, through Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his triumph, Father God, we receive so many rich blessings. And we pray, Father God, and I pray for everyone here today that they would understand them and then walk in them as I myself need to do. And so, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And may your blessing be upon it in Jesus' name. Amen.